You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 125. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. And somehow it's caught into people's minds that your final height is linked to how much calcium you put in their diet. There's undoubtedly a greater calcium utilization and therefore greater absorption Um, during peak growth period. So probably a little bit earlier for girls, but during adolescence, especially during that growth spurt, it is essential that they get a little more calcium than is required. Hello, veggie lovers. Welcome back and happy Sunday. I have another plantastic episode about nutrients for you. And today it comes from Dr. Rajiv Bajekal. Yes, you have heard this last name before because he is the third Bajekal to make an appearance on Veggie Doctor Radio. This family is amazing. So first I interviewed Dr. Neetu Bajekal, who is an obstetrician gynecologist. And then one of their daughters, Rohini Bajekal. And now I'm interviewing Papa Bajekal, Dr. Rajiv Bajekal, and we're talking about calcium and bone health. This is an excellent episode. I think you're going to learn a lot and hopefully it will clarify some of the questions you have that I also had. I also learned a lot from this episode. But before I tell you more about Dr. Rajiv Bajekal, I want you to know that I do have lots of free resources that have been very helpful to a lot of people that are looking for information to replace dairy, replace meat, looking for a plant-based shopping list, all kinds of great things. If you go to dryami.com, that's D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com forward slash free, F-R-E-E, you can download as many of those free resources. PDF resources that you would like. So go browse, see if there's any that would be useful to you and download them. Thank you so much for your support and for being a loyal listener. If you want to support the show further, there's two ways. You can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash the Dr. Yami. There's lots of perks to being a patron and it really supports the show improves the quality of the show and ensures that we can continue to bring you this amazing value week after week after week. In addition, if you feel like shopping, go to my affiliate store, dryami.com forward slash shop. Thank you so much to all of you who have already read my book, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, 
how to raise kids who love to eat healthy. If you haven't already, check it out. You can find it on any of the major online booksellers. It is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. So lots of different ways that you can enjoy this book, learn about intuitive eating, learn about how to feed your child, but also what to feed your child through all of the stages of development from pregnancy through adolescence. But a lot of moms have told me that, you know, it helps them with their children, but it has really helped them and the way that they see food and they see their bodies. So if you feel like you could benefit from it, check it out. It's also available in lots of libraries, but if your library doesn't have it, request it, and then they can bring it to your library. So thank you so much. If you have a moment to review my book on Amazon, I would really appreciate it. Just want to remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. So if you have concerns about you or your child's eating, nutrition, or growth, please consult a health professional. Dr. Rajiv Bajekal is a consultant spinal surgeon with a practice on the National Health Service and privately in London. He was appointed consultant orthopedic surgeon in 1998 and has been working in London at the Royal Free London NHS Foundation Trust since 2002 as a spinal surgeon. He has published widely and lectures nationally and internationally besides being a senior examiner for the FRCS Orthopedics. He is an active member of the Plant-Based Health Professionals UK. In 2016, he had some personal health problems and put on a lot of weight during his time in the UK. He and his wife researched diet and nutrition, and he embarked on a way of living a healthier life with compassion and care for the environment. In the process, he lost 25 kilos of weight, reversed his diabetes, and found a new zest for helping patients live a healthier life. He decided to study lifestyle medicine as a lot of the disorders affecting people nowadays are lifestyle related. And he and his wife, who has also been on the podcast, she's a gynecologist, both studied and passed a diploma examination in lifestyle medicine conducted by the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. He and his wife, Nitu, are now certified lifestyle medicine practitioners with a diploma from the International Board of Lifestyle Medicine, by far his proudest achievement. They also lecture on lifestyle medicine prevention of long-term ill health. Bajekel has also written the module on bone health for the first UK plant-based online nutrition course conducted by the University of Winchester. Like I said, you're going to love this episode. So we start out talking about Dr. Bajekel's own plant-based journey. And if you've listened to Dr. Nitu Bajekal's episode and their daughter Rohini's, they each have different stories and different perspectives and they're in the same family. And I love that. I love how it just highlights how everybody has to come to a lifestyle, habit and behavior change in their own way, from their own perspective, with their own desires. And I think that that is just a beautiful example of this. So I I think you're going to really love his story and how honest and authentic he is about it. But then we talk about being an orthopedic surgeon. We talk about osteoporosis. We talk about calcium and how much is important. Where does it come from? Do we need to drink milk? What do you think an orthopedic surgeon would say about that? Do you think that he would say that we need to have milk in order to have bone health? 
And then we talk about other lifestyle factors that can either help or harm bone health. And you're going to learn a lot from this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today on Veggie Doctor Radio. And now on to the episode. Dr. Rajiv Bajako, thank you so much for joining me on Veggie Doctor Radio today. It's an absolute pleasure and honor, Dr. Yami. <laughs> well, I have been looking forward to this conversation so much because we're going to get into a topic that is so important, and that's bone health. And you're the ultimate expert on bone health. But before we get more into the, the details of that, Tell me a little bit about your plant-based journey. How did that happen and what happened along the way? Okay, I mean, it's it's a long story, but uh, and do interrupt me if I'm going, going off piste. Um, uh, I was brought up in a largely vegetarian upbringing in India. Most people are vegetarian, um, mainly because I think meat is not subsidized. Um, it's, uh, it's expensive. And as children, we were brought up in a largely vegetarian household, but my parents had lived abroad. And once a month or so, we'd eat out, usually at a restaurant, and it was the same dish that we all ordered. Uh, And we ate um, some chicken, some eggs and dairy, dairy mainly in the form of yogurt. India is, as you know, very, uh, very fond of their dairy, Uh, And it somehow got into our diet uh, at that stage. I then went to school. uh, It was a boarding school in the south of India. And it was uh, um, organized by, I mean, the the school was founded by a philosopher called Jiddu Krishnamurthy, who actually lived and passed away, I think, in Ohio, in California. Um, And it, it, uh, you know, we, we grew pretty much our food. So it was my early introduction to a plant-based lifestyle, I would say, because it was whole food, but not by choice, but that's what it was. We were so far away from anywhere that we actually ate um, whole grains, including brown rice, which we used to look down upon because we said, oh my God, why is rice brown? Because at home we got white rice. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And we had some dairy because we had a few cows there, so we got some yogurt. But instinctively, I mean, I think I had lactose intolerance. It never agreed with me. Um, Yogurt agreed better with me. But, um, you know, once we moved to England, to to Britain in 1991, um, my diet uh, changed quite a lot, I would say. I mean... In hospitals at that time, and we were often very busy, um, young doctors trying to make a a cow out a life for ourselves. Um, And I was eating what everybody else was eating. So um, not a huge amount of meat, but quite a lot of dairy, poultry, um, and fish. Um, And a a fair bit of processed food. Um, Some fizzy drinks here and there, some chips, and a standard lunch was a sandwich, usually with fish inside, tuna or something, tuna mayonnaise, um, and a Coke, a can of Coke and chips. Um, and that was the standard lunch that we had. Now, in 1996, uh, 
which was 24 years ago now, my daughters both turned vegan. Um, they'd read a bit around it. My younger daughter, Nana, was particularly inquisitive. Uh, and she didn't realize till then that the ham or sausages that she was particularly fond of was from animals. And um, overnight she turned and she went vegan. So the rest of the family, except myself, I mean, they all joined her. Uh, and quite rightly so at that stage. Uh, I resisted mainly because of social pressures, because I wanted to fit in. And as an orthopedic surgeon, I don't think if anybody had met a vegetarian, leave alone a vegan, you know. So um, I, at home, we were vegan, but uh, I ate fish at work and some eggs and dairy, um, cheese sandwiches and so on. And over a period of 14 years in this country, I found I was 25 kilograms overweight. So um, about 55, 60 pounds uh, higher in my weight. And I just didn't like the look. And you, you've interviewed Neetu, and she's a, a very glamorous, slim lady. So everybody used to draw that sharp contrast and used to, you know, mm -hmm. it, I used to look very... Uh, clearly overweight and very different to how my wife looked. Um, and we put it down to the usual factors, genetics and so on. Um, and I tried a whole set of diets. I was very determined. So I thought about Atkins diet. I mean, with just fish and cheese. I mean, I wasn't eating meat and chicken. I stopped eating that when my children went vegan and my wife went vegan. And they were doing it, obviously, with uh, animal uh, animal welfare in their um, site. Um, and uh, I lost a bit of weight, and it was yo-yo dieting. I'd put it back on. Um, and in 2012, I realized I was pre-diabetic. Um, my uh, mother was diabetic. My brother and sister, who are older than I am, were diabetic. And I just put it down to genes, as one does. And I carried on in the same way. In fact, at that time, Neetu used to think uh, that, you know, I was lucky because I could eat healthful um, eggs and, uh, you know, uh, oily fish, which she said was good for, I mean, which we all thought was good for me. Um in 2016, when I, I was really fed up of my weight and Neetu chanced upon a, a YouTube video by a chap called Michael Mosley, who's, a, uh, who's well known here. He was talking about the 800 calorie diet for diabetes. Um, it was a brutal diet, 800 calories uh, over five days. Um, in fact, for the first eight weeks, it was just 800 calories every day. And I managed to shed 12 kilograms of weight, so about close to 30 pounds of weight. And I felt better. But when I went home, and I used to travel to India quite frequently, my mother was elderly and she was unwell. So I'd visit two or three times a year. And uh, India is very much like the United States. So it's very laboratory heavy. And you could just walk into a lab and get all your markers done, something that you can't actually do easily in, in Britain because the National Health Service um, has regulations. I mean, you can't just demand a test or get one by paying a little bit of money. So when I, when I did my tests, I had gone from being pre-diabetic to being diabetic. 
mm-hmm. despite having lost quite a lot of weight. And at the same time, I was actually exercising heavily. So I'd got a good friend uh, who's uh, part of our group of orthopedic surgeons, and he got me into cycling, and I was cycling between 30 and 100 miles a week. So I was getting fitter, but the diabetic markers had all got dramatically worse. And Nitu and I talked about my taking some medication for it. Um, And I wasn't keen to start on anything because I felt once I went down that rabbit hole, that was the end and I'd be on drugs forever. So in 2017, um, actually 2016, December, I was driving to a friend's house for a Christmas party and Nitu had a very long, tiring day, my wife. So she fell asleep on the seat next to me. And I realized that I had nearly driven into a lamppost. Um, I just hadn't seen it. Uh, So it was quite a shock when she woke up and saw me heading towards the lamppost. Um, So we went to the dinner um, event, and uh, there was a friend there who was an ex-ophthalmic surgeon, and I said, I couldn't see this lamppost till the very last second. Um, And he looked into my eye with his iPhone and he said, you've got cataracts in both your eyes. Um, I also had frozen shoulders at the time. I was uh, really at a low. Uh, I was diabetic. And I suddenly realized as a spinal surgeon, I was going to need cataract surgery in both my eyes. Um, And yet I was trying my hardest, um, you know, to get, get rid of this condition or to get better. Um, when I got my eyesight back, it was quite a revelation. I mean, it's it's a, a great quality of life operation. So I was watching television and came across Forks Over Knives. And Neetu was at work. Um, she came back from an evening uh, on call. Uh, and I said to her, look, I'm going plant-based. I saw this. Uh, so she, said, she thought she had upset me in some way. And <laughs> I was seeing the light suddenly. So... I said, no, I saw this movie. And she said, it's it's nearly 24 years we've been trying to change your ways. And here you go, watch a documentary, and you say you want to go plant-based. But, of course, she was extremely supportive. They were all delighted. My whole family was delighted. Um, and she said, you must do it slowly. You're very fond of fish. You know, we, we grew up because my background is from a coastal area in India. So we're used to eating fish. And uh, I tried it two weeks down the line, and I didn't want anything. Uh, Yeah, I didn't want to eat fish. So I went almost, uh, I mean, we didn't know what was whole food plant based completely at that point. But it was very plant based, and I got better and I lost another 12 kilograms. And I reversed my diabetes. We went on holiday to China, and uh, in our group there was a, a few. There were a few Adventists from America, uh, and it was easy to find vegan food. We thought we wouldn't survive in China, but it was easy. And there we learned about this holistic holiday at sea, uh, and we joined that cruise. Uh, and um, we met Dr. Michael Greger at that time, and. Uh, he talked to us about doing um, this lifestyle medicine course because having reversed my own diabetes, it was still N is equal to one. It's hardly 
uh, a powerful equation in changing other people's lives. So I decided, and Neetu and I decided, we should do this course. And we did a lifestyle medicine practice uh, and learned so much more about the diet, the way of living, uh, and about the other benefits, which you know I, I wasn't open to. My eyes were shut at that time. But I learned about the benefits to the planet, the environment, and of course, the animals. And, you know, on to top it all, it was making me feel much more energetic and uh, um, it gave me my life, really. So uh, I now practice quite a lot of lifestyle medicine in addition to what I do in my day job. Wow, what a story. And I am so happy that I got to ask your perspective because like you said, I've heard from Nitu's perspective and I've also heard from your daughter Rohini and her perspective of the change to being you know, plant-based and vegan. But I just want to highlight that part that struck me the most that you had already lost so much weight and you had worked so hard for it. And we assume that weight loss equals health all the time. We think that if you lose weight, things will just get better no matter how you're losing that weight. But you found that you actually got a little bit worse and you were having all these other health things and the frozen shoulder are not feeling good. And you're an orthopedic surgeon. So it's really important to feel well to, for the work that you do. So now that you look back and, you know, of course you went at a different pace than the rest of your family, but now that you look back, what things would you have done differently? Oh, for sure. I think, um, you know, I mean, you uh, and all of us know that in medical school, we hardly taught anything about nutrition. We are taught about, you know, if you don't have uh, vitamin B1, you might get very, very, I mean, how often do you see these conditions? Hardly ever. So we were taught about deficiencies. We were never taught about this condition that we now face, which is abundance mm -hmm. and excess of certain kinds of foods, the processed foods in particular, but also, um, you know, uh, foods from animal origin, which um, can cause harm to our health long term. Um, and uh, I, I would have joined them much earlier had I known that it was a diet of abundance. Um, it wasn't so easy for them, I would say, because at that point, uh, uh, this way of eating used to make them struggle quite often. And she, you know, Neetu was very fond of sweets and well, I would tuck into, uh, you know, a, a, a trifle pudding or something uh, that is typical of uh, a dairy heavy uh, and sugar heavy thing. And I wasn't in particularly fond of sweets that too, but she'd, she'd get an apple as a dessert. You know, So um, it's much easier now and you can get uh, high quality whole food plant based um, treats and, and desserts and uh, food is uh, is never a problem, even if you step out to a restaurant. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. It's much easier. But I would have done it so much earlier because I'd have saved myself all these years of ill health, I would say. And just feeling like you were running on 50% of your batteries. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, everybody has to go at their own pace. We all have uh, the different differences in the way we think and approach the world. So it was important for you to do it the way that you did it. I'm just glad that you finally did find something that helped you feel better. And now that you can inspire and teach 
patients, which is fantastic. Well, I know that you do practice some lifestyle medicine, but you are also an orthopedic surgeon. So tell me about that profession and what are the typical problems that you see as an orthopedic surgeon? What are you kind of doing on your on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I mean, um, in in Britain, we have two components to our job. So most of us work for the National Health Service, which uh, is a nationalized system of uh, medicine, pretty much our government job, if you like. Um, It is um, what we enjoy because it's not really tainted by money. There's no real, um, you know, it's it's very applied in in the sense, uh, unless it's evidence-based, you really can't do it. Um, So I'm a trauma and orthopedic surgeon. I've gone part-time now as uh, I've developed a passion for lifestyle medicine. So I've taken some time back for that. so I dealt, I used to deal with trauma. I had a fracture clinic, uh, but 80% of my practice was spinal and degenerative mm-hmm. spinal, mainly lumbar spine work. So I was dealing with disc problems, spinal stenosis, uh, spondylolisthesis, uh, and a lot of osteoporotic fractures of the spine, which are becoming much more common in this country. Um, uh, I'm also... Um, I practice privately in a number of hospitals, five or six hospitals, and I'm part of a group of orthopedic surgeons. Um, and we look at uh, orthopedics quite holistically. So we, we call it total orthopedics. Um, and uh, we we practice on the National Health Service together, but we also do a lot of private work together. So I'm, I'm with that group. Awesome. And so whenever you do your spinal work, is that mostly an older population, especially because you're doing some osteoporosis work, or is it all ages? It's it's all ages, actually, because um, disc problems and disc herniations, um, sciatica, etc., are much more common in the younger age group, kind of between the ages of 30 and 45. And then uh, the more degenerate problems where you get uh, bone growing onto the nerves, so spinal stenosis and osteoporotic fractures are in the slightly older age group. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in your orthopedic work, do you bring up plant-based nutrition with those patients or not really? Um, I do. It's not just with the patients, but with my group of orthopedic surgeons, uh, the plant, you know, the total orthopedics group. And in fact, we have quite quite a lot of diversity in our group. There's, uh, uh, and I, I preach it to them. I teach them uh, all about lifestyle medicine on a regular basis because I think they can also make a lot of impact. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, one of my colleagues is a South African um, uh, surgeon who, um, I mean, South Africans were, you know, they're very heavy into their meat. And he used to have biltong as a snack, which is dried meat, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, like you would probably have a prune or a dried fig as a snack. Um, but he listened to me talk about it on a couple of occasions. And initially, when you first take to plant-based nutrition, you are quite evangelistic about it and you um, want to force it down people's throats because you've had such a great experience. But the second time I spoke about it, I was much gentler, much kinder, and he took to it 
Uh, and he said, I'll try it for two weeks and then I'll come back and tell you what a waste of time that was. <laughs> he met me four weeks later and he said, I feel wonderful and thank you. I've lost a lot of weight and I'm continuing to lose weight and I've kept to it. And he stuck to it now for over a year. He met me the other day and again told me how, uh, how much benefit he's had from it. Um, wow. So all my patients who are quite often overweight or they have diabetes or they have heart disease or other lifestyle related disorders, just posture and back pain. Um, I will talk to them quite a lot about lifestyle medicine in general, but specifically about a plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. um, and I try to meet them where they are rather than push them into it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's actually quite inspiring for them to see. I, I have my photograph of myself from when I was much, uh, much heavier and, uh, you know, uh, my current photographs on my favorites on my iPhone. So that is quite inspiring for patients to see. And they know I've been through the same struggles that uh, they've had. And eat, a lot of them have tried various diets and uh, are willing to make changes. And you have to just help them along by trying to do it one meal at a time. And I'm much kinder than I used to be when I first started on this journey. And I find it's, um, it pays a rich dividend. So you tell a patient, you know, I mean, you're at a much higher risk of getting this condition because you are currently this weight and you'd probably do well to shed a few pounds. Uh, and uh, you ask them to help you by doing that. And sometimes they don't need the operation that they were coming for because mm. they've got significantly better in terms of their back problems. So it's, it's much more rewarding by, uh, you know, when I talk to them about plant-based nutrition. I love it. That's so awesome. All right. Well, let's get into calcium because I, I want to pick your brain on some of these things. Let's start with what calcium really is. What is calcium? Where do we get it from? And why is it important? And now a word from our sponsor. I am so honored that Forager Project is the sponsor for this episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Guys, the Forager Project is a California crafted brand that has been around since 2013. They are organic, plant-based, family-owned, and they create innovative, delicious tasting products made from nuts, seeds, ancient grains, fruits, and vegetables. You may have seen some of their products. They have yogurt, they have kefir, they have milks and sour cream made from organic cashews. Their ingredients are wholesome, organic, and what I love is that they don't use a ton of ingredients or additives inside of their products. But what's really cool is that they have the vote campaign going on right now. So they have created the Forager Projects vote campaign they want to help cultivate democracy. So during the next month, the Forager Project will be shifting the packaging on its yogurts, kefirs, and milks to encourage consumers nationwide to get involved and vote this November. 
Forager Project is passionate about creating healthy, organic, plant-based food, and they are equally passionate about nurturing a healthy democracy. They believe that voting is the most essential ingredient needed to do this. They really want to inspire you to get out and vote. If you want more information on the Forager Project vote campaign, go to foragerproject.com forward slash vote or follow them on the socials at Forager Project. Cultivate democracy. Vote. I mean, calcium is a mineral. So like any other mineral, it's there in the soil. It's there in earth. Um, And we can get it uh, from plants because plants, I mean, cows get it from the same source. And we can uh, get it from um, a lot of plants, green leafy vegetables in particular. And we can go into which ones are particularly bioavailable in that sense. But calcium has uh, a lot of roles in our body. I mean, as an orthopedic surgeon, if you ask most of them, they'll say, well, it's in bone. It makes your bones strong. And indeed, it does. Um, But it has far greater functions in terms of neuromuscular signaling. So the nerves, the muscles, and intracellular signaling is also vital with calcium. So it has a lot of... That's why... Calcium is regulated to such a fine window where uh, it rarely goes above a certain level and rarely falls below a certain level in our blood, Uh, mainly because 99% of it is stored in our bone and our teeth. And that's like a reservoir of uh, calcium where um, hormones like parathyroid hormone can borrow from bone. Um, And, you know, bone strength is a balance ultimately between osteoclastic, which is bone dissolving activity and osteoblastic or bone forming activity. Mm -hmm. Um, And vitamin D is also there in that same equation. It helps us absorb calcium from the gut. Um, But really, it's there, it's stored in bone and the levels are very finely tuned by our various hormones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think here in the United States, probably also in Britain, when people hear the word calcium, we have been completely conditioned to think milk, calcium, milk, same thing, need milk to have calcium. If we don't drink milk, bad things are going to happen to our bones, (laughs) you know, and doctors too. So pediatricians, especially because we deal with children and growing children are very strong to advocate for milk. So I'd love to hear from you, the perspective of an orthopedic surgeon, you deal with the bones all the time. Do we need milk? Do we need to consume dairy in order to obtain sufficient calcium for our bone health? Um, in, In one word, no. But if I was to expand on that, I mean, it's the most successful campaign for anything. I mean, I think they learned well from the tobacco industry, which after 6,500 studies or so, um, they had to admit that there was a risk with cancer. And similarly with milk, they've put out this thing that it's essential for our bones and the milk mustache on uh, various advertisements that you see. 
It is a source of calcium. There's little doubt about that. I mean, it is meant for, after all, a baby cow to grow very considerably in a few months into an adult cow. Um, but it actually isn't so bioavailable as a source of calcium. So only about 25 to 30% of it gets absorbed at any time. And they're far better sources, really, in terms of a food um, that helps with our bones. So we can get the same sources of calcium, you know, uh, same amount of calcium from eating green leafy vegetables like bok choy, cabbage, broccoli, and kale, or, um, you know, calcium set tofu is a particularly good source of both protein as well as calcium. Um, and with globalization of food, I mean, tofu is now widely available, whereas earlier it, it wasn't so commonly available in countries in the West, for instance, in the past. So it's, And a lot of our plant-based milks, like soy milk, are often fortified. In, in Europe, um, it has to be, uh, to, you know, only organic soy milk is not fortified. They're not allowed to add anything to it other than just organic soya. Um, milk, on the other hand, uh, does have a lot of other things that are undesirable. Um, I mean, you, you've done a wonderful podcast on milk, but just to reiterate a few things, I mean, it's got insulin like growth factor one, which um, uh, is implicated very heavily in prostate cancer and endometrial cancer. Uh, it, ha it is a high source of saturated fat, and especially in forms like cheese, um, it comes in uh, at a very high level of saturated fat, and that has implications in coronary artery disease. Um, it really is a source of people putting on weight, and uh, you know that uh, affects their insulin resistance, and you can get type 2 diabetes in particular. Uh, and I think it's quite interesting that although it's marketed so heavily as a source of calcium and essential for your hard bones, the evidence for that is really quite poor. So if you look at the nurses' health study or the Adventist uh, health study and uh, even the PCRM paper, which is quite clear on uh, the risk of fractures being higher in people who drink more milk. Um, yes, some people may say there is an association and not a direct causation, um, but I think... Even the WHO struggled with the calcium paradox when they looked at uh, data from countries. So the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, looked at it. Um, they found that countries such as Sweden and Denmark, which had high dairy consumptions, had also a lot of people having osteoporotic fractures. Mm -hmm. So th th that question is really... You know, if, if it's marketed so heavily for your bones, and uh, that is still quite unclear as to whether it is really an advantage or a disadvantage, um, I really think uh, there are far more helpful sources, both for the individual and certainly for the planet, where we can get our calcium from. Absolutely. Yeah, because first of all, we make the assumption and we take it for granted, frankly, I think, that you know, milk 
is directly correlated with bone strength and bone health, decreasing the risk of hip fracture, that kind of thing. So whenever people hear that, first of all, that's, I think would be surprising and shocking to a lot that, oh, wait, I just assumed if it's been marketed that way, that the evidence must show very clearly that it is directly correlated with bones being stronger, but we don't have that. And then on the other hand, you do have evidence, just like you're saying, that it can be detrimental. And some of the things you didn't mention, which are even more common, is just living with lactose intolerance, which Absolutely. you said before that you had. There's going to be a very high percentage after the age of three of humans that do not tolerate drinking milk. It causes distress, nausea, diarrhea, flatulence, you know, just not feeling well. <laughs> so that's yeah. not something you want to have when you're walking around, you know, trying to live a good life. So, you know, all of those things, plus the increased cancer risk and having the hormones in there. So there's lots of reasons to consider not consuming milk. But thankfully, You've mentioned other sources. So our green leafy vegetables, calcium set tofu, fortified milks, and, and those kinds of things. But that leads me to the next question is, what is the optim optimal amount of calcium intake? And is it controversial? Oh, it is. Absolutely. I mean, um, the, the, the odd thing about it when you start looking into it is that every country seems to have a different recommended daily allowance. And some countries don't even go there. So the kind of thing, I, I think, um, the, when the WHO looked at it, they were unwilling to come up with a blanket recommendation for the whole world because populations differ. And I think it's quite clear that countries that have a higher consumption of animal-based products, and especially meat, um, they seem to have a higher requirement of dietary calcium. And the the explanation that I've seen uh, is that uh, a lot of these uh, animal proteins are rich in sulfur-containing amino acids, particularly methionine and cysteine. Uh, and when these are metabolized, they ultimately, I mean, you can't store proteins. I mean, you can repair your proteins, but ultimately you have to get rid of them through the liver and kidney. Um, and when they go out, they're ultimately metabolized into sulfuric acid, which is quite an acidic component, and that draws out calcium from the bones. And you therefore need a higher absorption of calcium to make up for the bone that you're losing as a result of this acidic environment. In fact, people who in countries where a lot more fruit and vegetables are consumed, you have uh, what is called a, a lower potential renal acid load of um, you know, because these proteins aren't rich in sulfuric acid or sulfur-containing uh, amino acids. Uh, and you have a much lower requirement of calcium. Um, Dr. McDougall, in his um, start solution, uh, had looked at this and had talked about um, the Bantu women who live in uh, parts of uh, South Africa and uh, had a predominantly plant-based diet. And they would go through their reproductive age, often having five or six babies, and either being pregnant or lactating to feed their children. And they had a calcium requirement, uh, which was very low. In fact, even lower than 500 milligrams, which is very lower than what a lot of Western countries would suggest at their recommended daily allowance. 
So it is called the calcium paradox because, uh, as I said, it's it seems to be linked heavily to how much meat we we eat in our countries. Yeah, and I love how you brought up this protein thing because I think a lot of people don't understand this because protein is also one of those nutrients, macronutrients that everybody thinks is just the more, the better, right? <laughs> so it's like, you can't get too much protein, but you know, people, especially when they're eating high animal protein, that is hard on the kidneys and people have actually gone into kidney failure. Sometimes these bodybuilders that are putting in all, all this animal protein, because it's true, your body can only hold on to so much protein at a time. It's not unlimited. The only macronutrient that's unlimited storage is probably fat. That one, we can put away a lot of that, <laughs> but <laughs> carbohydrates and protein, we cannot, your body has to metabolize it somehow. And it's going through the kidneys and it, it can cause issues. But the way that our physiology works, just like Dr. Bajekal is explaining that whenever we're getting rid of this protein, we have to balance out the, um, the acid base in our blood. And so that can cause us to lose extra calcium in our urine. And that's what the theory is as to why having this high protein diet, animal protein diet might actually cause you to have to intake more calcium in order to have enough. So, I mean, it's very interesting and it, it doesn't, you know, it could be very complicated to understand, but I think that pointing out the protein thing is really important too, because a lot of people don't know that. Yes. Well, one question that comes up a lot in pediatrics, because for children, children are growing and a lot of children, especially babies and toddlers are growing very rapidly. Now we know that children under the age of one, they're either breastfed or they're on formula. So they're getting a certain amount of calcium that way. But then after that, parents start to get a little bit nervous and worried about their child getting enough calcium because they're worried that they're, they may not reach their adult height potential. So what do you know about this? Is there anything that you've learned in the orthopedic world as far as calcium intake and adult final adult height? Yes, I think it's it's overemphasized this, and somehow it's got into people's minds that your final height is linked to how much calcium you put in the diet. There's undoubtedly a greater calcium utilization and therefore greater absorption um, during peak growth period. So probably a little bit earlier for girls, but during adolescence, especially during that growth spurt, it is essential that they get a little more calcium than is required. I think there was an interesting study from China, which was uh, the equivalent of your NHANES type of organization. It was the Chinese uh, Health and Nutrition Examination Survey is what it's called, I think. And they looked at it and they, they felt that anything more than 370 milligrams per day was enough for children to reach their ultimate growth potential. There's little doubt that it's not just bone strength, but it is height and uh, it, the volume of bone that is, uh, you know, uh, during the ultimate growth spurt that requires more calcium. So at that stage, it is probably an advantage to give them these helpful sources of calcium that we talked about, fruit, vegetables, whole grains, um, nuts and seeds, but in particular focusing on things like uh, two portions of soya 
um, you know, uh, calcium set tofu, uh, fortified plant-based milks, and uh, green leafy vegetables, which are low in oxalate. Mm -hmm. So especially things like bok choy, broccoli, um, those are rich sources uh, of calcium and uh, kale. Um, you know, these are all rich sources of calcium. Yeah, I love it. And yes, I think intuitively as a pediatrician and as a mother, it's one of those things that I've realized is that one of the most important things for children to grow to their potential is just making sure that they're having access to adequate calories. You know, we know in pediatrics that when children don't get enough calories, they start, it starts to affect their growth, their weight, then their height, then their brain size. So yes. we make sure that kids get enough calories and that we're providing them with a good variety of foods. Just like you said, we got our fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds. Make sure that they're eating when they're hungry, stopping when they're satisfied. But I don't think we need to be so stressed out about them getting this high uh, amounts of calcium for their growth. I think that probably for the majority of children that have access to calories and nutrition, they're going to be fine when it comes to their height. So thank Absolutely. you for your input on that one. One of the things that has also been, you know, we, we've heard both things and, and studies coming out about calcium supplements, whether they're safe or not. So what's, what's your take on calcium supplements, whether that should be a regular part of somebody's diet, whether it's children or adults, and what's the difference between taking a calcium tablet in a supplement form or it being put into fortified foods? Yeah, I think um, there was a, a tendency for people to overemphasize, and I think it's quite a reductionist approach to look at just one element of bone. I mean, calcium is important, sure, because it is stored in bone, and it's a vital, um, you know, it's a vital micronutrient. Um, but when people start taking it as a supplement, there are certain dangers. And um, there, there were studies, I mean, there was a paper from Auckland in 2011 by Boland and Reed, which was particularly valuable because it cast some doubts about whether uh, there was a cardiac risk in taking uh, supplemental calcium. And supplemental calcium usually comes as calcium carbonate, which has about 40% of the element calcium in it. Um, you can also use it as calcium citrate, which is a little bit gentler and easily absorbed, and that provides about 23% uh, as calcium. Um, but because of this paper, there was a concern that the calcium that you took as a supplement just went straight into the walls of the arteries mm -hmm. and caused problems. Now, there have been other papers that have come out uh, and uh, there have been other authors. I mean, this was actually a meta-analysis, so it, was, uh, it shook the world up a little bit and yeah. uh, took the focus away, thankfully, from supplements. I mean, uh, in the plant-based world, we're quite clear that you do need to supplement vitamin B12. You do need vitamin D levels to be optimum, and how you get it is, you know, if, you, if you're north of 40 40 degrees uh, latitude, then you're very unlikely to get enough um, ultraviolet B rays during the day on your naked skin. 
to make your vitamin D. So those two are uh, really pretty much non-negotiable, as is probably iodine, because, again, that we fall short of sometimes. But other than that, it is, I think, quite reductionist to take a supplement. Fortified foods, on the other hand, and calcium citrate malate is uh, is added as fortification to soy milk and to plant-based milks, um, but also calcium set tofu, etc. These are safer sources. I mean, you cannot fortify foods to the same level as a supplement would. They're more readily absorbed. It doesn't alter the taste or nature of the food, uh, basically. Um, and in general, fortification has been received quite well by the medical community. And you find even orange juice, for instance, is fortified in, in America in particular. But uh, a lot of foods are uh, made, uh, you know, are fortified with calcium. So mm -hmm. um, I think particularly during your phase of rapid growth, as children have, and they they're eating a lot of these foods, they get that extra bit of calcium that they probably need at that point. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you for clarifying that because, you know, I think it is important to know that when people do take these calcium supplements, it usually is very large amounts, but also probably a different form than what's put into food. So you're unlikely to get these huge doses that you would if you were to take a tablet versus you're having a fortified food. But as a pediatrician, I do recommend after children are weaned, if they're no longer being breastfed after the age of one, you know, just a couple of servings of a fortified, unsweetened plant milk is usually sufficient, along with, like I said, a good, wholesome diet that has a variety of foods, whole plant foods in it is usually yes. enough. All right. Well, let's talk more about some other ways that we can make our bones healthy. So what are the most critical lifestyle and dietary factors for bone health? We've talked a lot about calcium. You've mentioned vitamin D, but I know that there's other things out there that we hardly ever talk about because we spend so much time talking about calcium, but maybe that's not even the most important thing. What is the most important thing to make our bones healthy? Okay. The, the way, I mean, I've thought about this uh, a fair bit. And um, I think, the, as you know, there's six pillars of lifestyle medicine. So I like to go in that order. And diet, uh, for me, um, is really quite important. Because I think if you have a healthy diet and you're putting the right kind of fuel into the body, um, you uh, it's like a domino effect. Everything else kind of follows on. I mean, certainly from an anecdotal perspective, I wasn't one to exercise in the past. Um, but when I got the right kind of diet for me, what felt better for me, I had much more energy uh, to exercise. Um, I used to find it really boring. And yes, I'd go out and play squash or, you know, badminton or something of that kind, tennis. Um, but I wasn't one for going into the gym and uh, doing any regular formed exercise. So I think from a dietary perspective, if you consider it as macronutrients and micronutrients, I find that quite helpful. So from a macronutrient perspective, there's little doubt that protein is vitally important um, for a bone quality. So um, bone is, you know, made up of a matrix and calcium. So, and minerals. So, the matrix in particular needs healthful proteins. Where do we get it from? Well, as we discussed earlier, animal sources 
are good for protein, but they have an imbalance. And that imbalance with sulfur-containing amino acids such as methionine and cysteine can cause a potential renal acid load that is detrimental, I think, and leads to a negative calcium balance from bones, and you therefore need more calcium. So instead of that, if you eat a more alkaline source of uh, proteins uh, and, uh, you know, proteins from plant sources are just as good. And in fact, uh, there is literally all the essential amino acids are available through plant sources. And we overestimate quite often how much protein we need. Um, as we were chatting earlier, I mean, 0.83 grams per kilogram body weight is, for an average adult, is more than enough. Yes, if you're pursuing uh, a heavy uh, muscle building uh, athletic activity or endurance activity, it goes to much higher levels than that. But in general, most average adults doing a regular amount of exercise can manage perfectly well with that. And there seems to be good evidence that if you have much more in terms of animal-based proteins, that is detrimental. Plant-based proteins are actually helpful even above that limit. Probably above the age of 70, we tend to absorb less proteins. And so therefore, um, you can increase that to about 1.2 grams per kilogram body weight. Um, we don't think about carbohydrates so much, but there's clear evidence that if we support our helpful microbiome with fiber, uh, and there was a recent study about prunes being helpful for bones. So really all kinds of fruit and vegetable uh, provide us the fiber uh, that we need for good bone quality. Um, Soya is particularly good as a source of protein, and it also has phytonutrients. So the phytoestrogens, such as genistin and datesin, are particularly beneficial for bone. Uh, and if you start soya consumption in childhood, in fact, the effects of menopause are less uh, harmful in women at the time of menopause. So they don't lose quite so much bone stock. So soya is particularly useful. Um, when we talk about uh, micronutrients, we've talked about calcium at length, so I'll skip that one. But we also need magnesium, manganese, and boron. And all these are found in leafy green vegetables as well as beans. Um, in our vitamins, uh, we've talked about vitamin D, which behaves much more like a hormone. And it's really an evolutionary hormone. So we used to go around... Uh, naked in sub-Saharan Africa. That's where we evolved from. And we we got a lot of sunshine and we made our vitamin D. We don't really do so in our sheltered environments right now. And uh, you know, even if you expose ourselves to sunlight in zones north or south of 40 degrees latitude, you don't get enough UVB light. So you must maintain your vitamin D levels at an optimum level so that you absorb the calcium in particular. Vitamin K2 is a little-known vitamin, but again, it's uh, it's got a big role in bone formation, and we get it from leafy greens. It's actually manufactured in our colon, so it's, uh, it's another important thing. We also underestimate vitamin C, and I was shocked to read in a paper recently that in 
the United States, there are lots of people who are still vitamin C deficient. So they, that gives you an idea of how little fruit or vegetables, uh, green leafy vegetables they're consuming. Um, so these are the critical dietary factors that are important for us. Uh, in addition, I think what is important is exercise. And certain types of exercises seem better. So weight-bearing exercises. And uh, I certainly suggest some form of stimulation. So skipping, jumping, star jumps, bumpy, burpees, um, total body vibration uh, devices, you know, where you stand on a platform and you can actually do what are called stacked exercises. So if you do resistance training on top of a platform that vibrates, that seems to be particularly good for bones. Um, you don't have to do any complex things, but I think resistance exercises using either weights or bands or even your own body weight, so calisthenics, are particularly good for building muscle, but also good for building bone. Uh, and the simplest thing is really to build up the big muscles of the legs. These are the strongest muscles and are particularly important for elderly people because if they are weak, uh, you tend to fall more readily. And that's what ultimately results in a hip fracture. Um, all the pillars of lifestyle medicine are important, but um, sleep and getting a good quality sleep enables you to exercise and stay more active. So even that is, is so important. And I tell people avoidance of certain things is also vital. So, um, I mean, we all love our coffee, but and coffee is good for so many other points of use, but if you have an excess of it, so more than four or five cups, it tends to leach out the calcium from bone. Fizzy drinks are particularly bad, and we used to think it was the phosphoric acid in it, um, but it's, it's um, you know, cola drinks are particularly bad because it has caffeine and it has the phosphoric acid and sugar. The, so sugar-sweetened beverages are really bad news, uh, as is alcohol and smoking, uh, which are the obvious ones that we know about. But really, I think if you increase your level of activity and vary your exercise, that really helps build bone, particularly. Yes. That sounds great. And one of the things I wanted to point out was that the Shurzais talked about in their book, an association between having big, strong legs and yes. also having brain health. And, you know, I think about that with longevity as well, too. So what you're saying is that having a stronger base is going to protect you from falls. So that would make sense that if we do a really good job building that lower body, having strong leg muscles, then it's going to protect us for a lot of different reasons, you know? So Absolutely. that's really cool. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, how important is it to start thinking about bone health at a young age? And is it ever too late to start taking better care of your bones? Well, I think at a young age, um, youngsters are more interested in how they look and uh, the their muscle definition, etc., and the muscle size, and they're more into building muscle, which thankfully actually works out quite well because that does stress bone also. So um, the bigger, stronger muscles you have, the more your bone is subject to pressure. And there was a, a German anatomist and surgeon 
Julius Wolff, who said, uh, bone responds by build, becoming stronger if you load it. So as long as young people indulge in a variety of outdoor and indoor activities and exercise, uh, I think it's hardly likely you're going to convince somebody who's young to do certain different activities um, based on the fact that when he's 80 or 90, he's going to be, he or she is going to be more at a risk of getting a hip fracture. <laughs> but I think it's important that they should be aware of the fact that by age 30, they build up their maximum bone stock and it's downhill all the way after. I mean, it's something that we don't think about. I mean, it's the same with muscle size uh, and sarcopenia becomes a problem when we're older. But uh, bone stock certainly becomes much lower after the age of 35. So you have a limited period to build up to a maximum bone stock. And the more you have, the more you can afford to lose, uh, especially for women in the uh, menopausal time. Yes. And, you know, I think it's important to point out that there's a lot of different factors that may cause that. I do want to talk about menopause in a second. But also just seeing how sedentary you're getting. I think sometimes as we get older, we do tend to become a little bit more sedentary and our kids grow up, they, they get more sedentary or they move away. We're not chasing kids around. So I think that also probably influences losing some of that bone and muscle mass because we're just not using it. And you pointed out earlier, what's very important is bone grows from being stressed. Like you have to put stress, you have to put tension on it. And we have to continue to be mindful that even as we age, we have to move. Move it or lose it, basically, Absolutely. right? Yeah. <laughs> so can you touch really briefly on menopause? Because I think a lot of people don't realize how important our hormones are when it comes to bone health. Another factor of why women in particular might be at higher risk for osteoporosis. Yes, at menopause, um, the most uh, rapid changes in bone quantity is uh, evident. So you, women can lose as high as 3 to 5% of the overall bone mass uh, at the time of menopause, in the immediate years around menopause. So that is uh, due to the lack of the protective influence of estrogens. And that's where it is really quite important um, to have these discussions about HRT if necessary, but at least to maintain helpful phytoestrogens. And that's why I keep uh, promoting soya, uh, which is really such a bone promoting agent, but also it has no deleterious effects on breast or endometrial tissue or uh, your cardiovascular system. So it's really quite a helpful uh, and uh, helpful food for bone. Um, and it avoids some of these hormonal fluctuations that you get uh, and the side effects uh, that one experiences around menopause. So uh, I, I think um, soya has got a very bad press in recent times. And, um, you know, people seem to equate soya with soya protein isolates or fractionated soya or junk food soya, which is really not with what we're talking about. We're talking about the less processed forms. So um, soya bean or edamame beans, um, tempeh, um, nor, you know, uh, calcium set tofu, etc. These are foods that are really good and get the green light by any nutritionist, I would say. Yes. And I want to 
second that as well, that you can think of soy more as a supportive factor rather than at it actually acting as a hormone. Because I think a lot of people assume that soy is like taking estrogen or something. They think it's a hormone and it's going to act on their body hormonally, but really it's more of a supportive nutrient that benefits us, decreases risk of certain cancers, even decreases the recurrence of certain cancers. Um, and we want to emphasize that it's important to stick to the more whole forms, like he was saying. So tofu, soy milk, tempeh, edamame, instead of the more processed forms of soy. Mm -hmm. So that's all super important. What do you wish more people knew about bone health? Um, well, I think, um, well, firstly, uh, I wish they'd uh, realize that cow's milk is not what it's cranked up to be. And, um, you know, th there is uh, a lot of debate about whether it's any good for us at all. And it's certainly not good for the environment or the cows. Uh, and with planetary health being what it is, we should really look at, uh, and last week was actually World Plant Health Day, and um, there are 30 different kinds of plant milks, and I'm sure most people can find something that suits their taste and is fortified appropriately and is as is much healthier than cow's milk. Um, the other thing is I really think soya should be rated much highly. I mean, we've talked about soya already. Um, and the third, which I think most people, even the public, are widely aware of it, but uh, doctors certainly are, about vitamin D levels. And if you are not getting enough vitamin D from sunshine, you really ought to top it up with a supplement. And there's no two things about it. Uh, levels vary, but uh, take consult with a physician or your family doctor and certainly um, six to 800 units of uh, vitamin D a day is perfectly appropriate. Awesome. Very good. And yes, the episode right before this one is on vitamin D. So talk all about vitamin D and testing and all of that. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to that one. If you want to know more about vitamin D. Well, Dr. Bajekal, what personal habit are you most proud of? <laughs> okay, this is, um, I, I've thought about this a little bit. I mean, I think what I'm particularly proud about is that I have walked my dog. Well, our first dog um, lived with us for 17 and a half years. Wow. And I walked him twice a day, every day. And it was my time of peace, of mindfulness. And I just attended to him, enjoying himself and watched him. And it was like, a fantastic meditative experience. I now have two, we now have two rescue dogs who we got after the first one passed away. There was a hiatus of about two years and I don't know how we managed without dogs. So walking my dogs and uh, during lockdown, um, it has been virtually the only outdoor exercise. Um, so I tend to, for about half an hour, I watch them and enjoy uh, what they're doing and play with them. And the rest of the time, I switch off a bit and listen to podcasts. And I've heard all your podcasts and various other podcasts during that. So I've gained a lot from that point. But that habit that whatever my day looks like, they will have a one and a half to two hour walk with me, even if it's very early in the morning uh, or late in the evening. Um, the other time, my wife, Neetu, will walk the dogs. So we, we've 
you know, put that time aside for them. And I quite enjoy that habit. Wow. That is such a beautiful routine. I could just feel my own cortisol dropping as you were talking about that. Like how relaxing is that? But also just having the empathy and enjoyment and compassion for those animals and how lucky are they? Like they're the most spoiled dogs in the neighborhood. I'm sure they get to walk twice a day. That's awesome. <laughs> how great. Dr. Rajeko, how can listeners connect with you? Okay. Well, I'm a newbie in the um, social media world, but I've just started my Instagram platform. So it's Dr. Rajiv. So R-A-J-I-V, Rajikal, B-A-J-E-K-A-L. Um, uh, that's my Instagram handle. Um, and uh, uh, I have a website which I'm revamping completely. It's an embarrassment to me. I haven't really spent enough time on it, especially there's nothing on lifestyle medicine. So I'm working quite hard on that at the moment. But I see myself doing and practicing lifestyle medicine even after my surgical career uh, stops because... Um, in general, most people retire from a surgical specialty around the age of 65, so I'll probably call it a day from that, but I'll go on to practice lifestyle medicine, so I really need to change my website. Oh, I love it. That sounds so amazing and so grateful that you have discovered this and are going to be available for years to come to help other people. Well, it's been a fantastic conversation. You have just provided amazing information. I know that this is going to be so helpful for so many people. But before I let you go, can you leave us with one call to action? What one thing can my listeners do to improve their bone health starting today? Okay. Um, the, the key thing, which I think people don't pay enough attention to, is resistance training. Um, and I would say from um, the lifestyle medicine perspective, we recommend 30 minutes twice a week. Mm -hmm. But even more is fine. Do whatever suits you. You don't have to go to a gym and work out on, um, on complex machinery or notelius-type machinery, but just simple dumbbells, resistance uh, bands, uh, it just keeps your joints more supple and gives your muscles something to do against resistance. It helps your bones massively. Um, and if you're older and more frail, um, then certainly exercises for the lower limbs, just standing up from a sitting position. Uh, and there is no upper age limit for doing weight training of this kind. So I think it's one that we don't focus on. You see people doing certain types of exercises repeatedly, mm -hmm. like going on an exercise bike. I used to go to a gym and there'd be somebody on a machine for one hour every day, but not vary their exercises. So I think resistance exercises is something to build into your day-to-day -day practice. Perfect. So start integrating resistance training. If you haven't already, you heard Dr. Bajekal. It's very, very important. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Veggie Doctor Radio today. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Thank you very much, Dr. Yami. Thank you for having me. <laughs> veggie lover, I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? 
please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.